uh, I've been meaning to reach out to you, Daniel, about coming together and having a conversation about chain mail, which uh, fortunately, uh, Cerebravor came along and Jason did the uh, coordination for us. So now I get all the benefit of having that conversation without the (laughs) coordination effort. Yeah. So your people called my people, but both of our people are Jason. Exactly. Pretty much. I'm I'm the people. Yep, that's right. No sunlight or Seeds of pain and Does it talk? Does it know how? Does it bottle? Does it Welcome back to Cerebrivore. I'm your host, Jason, from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Today, I have two guests. It's a small panel, but the small panel packs a punch. I have, well, well actually, Outback Water either way. Um, we, we have Daniel of the Bandits Keep Media Empire, and we have Taylor of the Clerics Wear Ringmail Media Empire. How are you gentlemen doing today? I'm doing well. I am doing just fine. We're in good. We're in good spirits with high morale. Excellent. Oh yeah. Excellent. So today, folks, we're going to talk about chainmail and using it in your games. We're, and and this conversation is going to be a little bit free flowing. Both Daniel and Taylor have been playing around with chainmail both by itself and kind of mixing it with OD and D. As you probably know, listener, OD and D was written originally with the idea of chainmail being the combat system. Then they had the D20 combat is the alternative combat, although the designers seem to mainly use that as their main combat. And and by the time the first supplement came out, by the time Greyhawk came out, that was the combat system effectively. Now, this isn't a new idea. Jason Vay, I think, is probably the biggest proponent of this prior to these two gentlemen. He has Elflare games. There'll be a link in the show notes to Jason Vay's stuff. Nowadays, he's his main push is Night Shift, which is a urban fantasy game. But Prior to that, he did, he's done a couple games. He did Spellcraft and Swordplay, which kind of mixes OD&D and Chainmail. And he's done a couple supplements just for Chainmail with the older rules, including one called for, Forbidden Lore that's pretty good. And all that will be in the show notes. I, I guess my first question for Daniel and Taylor, and I guess we'll go to Taylor first. We'll do reverse alphabetic order since, you know, Taylor ha- being later in the alphabet always gets stuck in the back of the bus, is... Did you look at Jason Vay's stuff at all when, when you were developing your work? I I truthfully didn't uh, did not unless unless Jason Vay is secretly also Gray Elf. <laughs> that he is Gray Elf. He is. Yep, yep, that, yes. All right, then I yep. did. Then I absolutely did. Um, I picked up part of my drive to understand the original edition was driven by uh, what makes OSR gaming different. And while I I won't go into too much about my personal history, one of the things that's been constant through every iteration I played as a kid growing into adulthood has been the ACS, the alternate combat system. And so when I found out that Chainmail existed because my only my first exposure to Chainmail was the third edition reboot, which effectively was not Chainmail. It was a D20 game, but 
then finding out the chain, the original chainmail, connecting the dots, remembering those lead clunky miniatures that used to collect dust at the local gaming shop next to the Warhammer, which they could never keep in stock, knowing that that was its own system, knowing that it was own game and seeing it integrate into an RPG. That was in, that was very curious for me. That was intriguing. And so that the, the drive there was finding that out, downloading uh, Mr. Vey's uh, Compliat chainmail. I hadn't dug into some of the other stuff. Some of the friends that we have on the audio dungeon have been proponents of a couple different links to stuff that we can download that, that he had worked on. And so having forgotten the question you asked to begin with, I hadn't, I had seen Compliat chainmail. I love that document. I borrowed a little bit from that for my cheat sheets. Um, planning to run a game tonight, uh, given the opportunity. And I've got my uh, DM screen on the wall behind me. Uh, I think you guys can see it, but um, almost you didn't you didn't go quite far enough. Oh, it didn't go quite far enough. So, so for the listeners, Taylor's turned his laptop around, and he has his the way his desk is set up. And there's a picture. In fact, I'll include a picture. I'll include a picture as the cover art for this episode. But he 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 has where his laptop sits, and then there's um, eight by eleven sheets of paper taped on the wall above it and around it that are his dm screen yeah nice. so yeah some folks use cereal boxes i use uh you know drywall <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tough bringing that to conventions though yeah yeah much much more difficult to get on the airplane definitely uh daniel were you influenced at all with mr bay's work i definitely was uh, my friend tony sent me because he knew i love conan uh, he sent me the the one using chainmail to produce Conan, whatever the first one is. And he didn't even think of it as like a chain. He wasn't like, oh, this is a, a chainmail system. He was just like OD&D and Conan. And weirdly enough, he's the first person who ever ran OD&D for me. We ran it on Gygax's birthday one year. I was like, I've never played. And he, he ran it. And uh, I looked at this and I was like, wow, this is so interesting. And a big focus of my game, as, as we'll probably talk about, is the three different types of combat. And that right away struck me as something super interesting because I always felt like there was something odd, like that I was missing in, in D&D. Like, because I, of course, my philosophy is there's lots of different chunks and you could, you know, I'm on this whole immersion, everything has to be one unified thing. And that just really caught me. And then, so I kind of looked at what he had, then read all of his supplements he made, and then kind of started moving in my own direction because I didn't like some of the things that he had done, which is exactly why we DIY stuff, right? We look at what somebody else did. We're like, that's amazing, but I would do it this way. And then we we start creating our own system, which is which is pretty awesome. And theoretically how Chainmail itself was built, at least the fantasy part, right? Because there's there's rumors that, that uh, they had seen like this Middle Earth war game thing and it's in like a, a pamphlet from some small war gaming club. Uh, and that's kind of where the, 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 the medieval, not the medieval, the... Uh, the fantasy parks chainmail came from because that's how it was back then it looks like people were passing stuff back and forth it wasn't until a lot of money came into it i think that but we'll talk maybe that's a whole other episode that that people started saying i invented this i invented that right it used to be people shared a lot more yeah like the internet yeah definitely yeah and 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 yeah i don't necessarily want to I, I mean if you guys want to just go down that road we can no, I but i was more just both because both of you kind of you, you started kind of in the same place, right? But both of you yeah. had the, the original rules and you'd seen this, at least some of the stuff Jason Bay did. Mm. And, and you and you said, this is the game I, w- I want to work on. I want to do my own hack of it. Maybe hack's a, a harsh word. I want to do my own version of this. 
that, that's going to, you know, I want to make the most playable thing I can out of this because I, I find it very interesting. And, and so I guess I'll, I'll throw the, the, the next one to Daniel. And then, you, you know, as the conversation goes, I'll yeah, butt it's out. It's like a presidential and, debate. Exactly. Like yes, yes, yes. The next question to the, yeah. I would not no, vote but, for me. <laughs> no, but so Daniel, I know you, you especially found, so you went in two different directions with this initially. You initially were doing a mix. You were going to include ODN. You are going to figure out a way to use Chainmail as the combat system for OD&D, the way it kind of talks about an OD&D. And then eventually you kind of said, well, Chainmail is perfectly fine by itself. It doesn't even need OD&D. <laughs> yeah. How about you talk it, about it, that for a second? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, right. And, and I'll kind of just throw this aside to start with and come back to it is that my, I think I early said in one of my earlier podcasts, I don't want this to be its own thing. I want it to be something somebody can attached to OD&D. But what I realized was, and I'll get back to your question in a second, that it's like a presidential debate. I mean, saying what I want to say. Uh, what I realized was that as you start to make changes to any system, it goes deeper than you think. So I ended up now I'm creating a whole system. But right at first I was like, cool, instead of just you know, OSR type characters with three hit points and, uh, you know, everybody attacks the same and everybody uses the same weapons. They all do the same damage. Instead of fixing that, I'm doing a lot of air quotes for some reason, uh, by adding like variable weapon damage and all this other stuff that they added in like Greyhawk and stuff. And, the, you know, those kids in Greyhawk, uh, Chainmail did that. It, it really gave you the idea that weapons made a difference when they needed to, right? When you're fighting with 50 orcs on the field, do you really need to worry about it too much? A little bit, right? But, uh, when you're fighting man to man, it makes a big difference. And, and it was it's really fun to really have the weapons make a difference. And that's when you see that, sure, all the weapons do a D6, but that dagger doesn't do so well against the plate mail, you know, but the fighter can use a two hand or sword and, and really do some damage. But then, as you say, I, my original thought was, wow, just using chain mill would be a great funnel, uh, you know, for, for OD&D, like just take 10 troops and go out there and fight a battle and whoever survives almost like DCC. And then the more I started doing it, I was like, how much do we really even need? Do we need the ability scores? Do we need these things? They don't do much in OD&D. I'm curious what, what, what Taylor's going to say about that. So that's where Unchained, which is the game working on now, is really based on where you just play the hero level character. And it's more or less based almost solely on Chainmail with very little OD&D. So rebuttal there? <laughs> <clears throat> That's interesting. It's it's interesting you mentioned the the character abilities not doing very much. I support that, and that's that was one of the par, uh, principles of design that Gygax believed in, and I believe he wrote about in the strategic review. That is, the abilities should matter in that you want to reward players who roll well. Uh, that's uh, that's fun, but also they should the primary driver of a character's ability should be level. Why is that? Well, the primary driver of your survival is going to be the skill of the player, knowing to prod ahead, knowing to corner the uh knowing to corner your enemies into a funnel so that you can take advantage of the environment to counteract their numbers. Being smart about how you play is going to make your character survive. As you survive, you gain more experience. As you gain more experience, you level. So by tying advancement and ability, then you reward the kind of game you want to create compared to if I want to go entirely on chance, I'll play Yahtzee. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that's just uh, true as a life thing. 
people love to level up. They like to get points. They like to do all these different things. And it, it's just a good psychological thing, right? Like you could start with the best character ever, but if you never improve, it doesn't really feel like you're, anything's happening. So I think having some kind of way of advancement in the game is is key to making D&D super fun, really. Versus, let's say, let's say if you were just playing Chainmail, you know, with no advancement, which is why I do have a slight advancement system in my Chainmail hack. Because I thought if you just sit down and play Chainmail every time, who cares if you're playing the same character? They never change, right? So you've got to have some form of advancement. Otherwise, I think the game doesn't work well for long campaigns, at least as a role-playing game. Maybe as a strategy game, it does, obviously. Right. And yeah, as, as a strategy game, it absolutely would, because you have your, your map campaigns, you have your domain management aspects. So in right. the context of that, you're still talking about uh, advancement because your your town grows, your dominion extends, and your right. army is is changing over time. So you have that management, that resource management aspect, uh, comparatively to the to the role playing game where it's more focused, it's more concise. You have the character advancing uh, where the army would and the domain would before. And right. Conversely, that's one of the beauties of OD and D, and really most of the OSR editions that delve the dip their toes into domain management you have all you have all of the above at the first tier of the game you have your your character their growth their process their uh, adventures then as you move up and you start moving across the map the overland you grow you build a warband you're still advancing as a character but the advancement slows slows down dramatically so you're, you're the xp you need to get to the next level is significantly higher and then once you get to the the name level some of those osr games just stop in od and ad and d both of them i believe have the caveat you can keep going uh at a uh, predetermined linear rate once you get to a certain point but the character you get an extra hit point uh essentially and so the uh at that point you've transitioned into the domain game. Uh, so it's it's a combination of all of the above fitting into that paradigm. Yeah, which is great. It kind of comes back to the the idea that uh, my overarching idea of everything, which mm -hmm. is that like the game is not just one game. You know, there's mm -hmm. lots of things going on. There's different different aspects of it. Your domain game is something completely different that you could totally play like uh, with boards and minis and this and that. Whereas mm -hmm. the role playing game, you could play just theater of the mind and never write anything down and just kind of play out the, what the characters do and roll some dice here and there. I think it's really interesting how you can play so many different ways, the same game, even the same characters. I, I, I want to, I, I don't want to cut you off yeah. Taylor. If you had an exact response to that. Oh, no, you're good. I was going to talk about character abilities. Let's go ahead. Oh, cool. well, well, let's hold that thought and we'll come right back to that. Cause Daniel mentioned something I want to hop into a little bit, Daniel, you've done some of these there. You have some actual plays out there on YouTube where you guys have done some of this. And I know you've you've fiddled with this for a little while. Have you done chain mail, just theater of the mind? And and how has that worked for you, if you have? Okay, so yes and no. Uh, 100% theater of the mind, no. But one of the first big battles that I had with my in-person group, who uh, I'll start off by saying people who don't follow myself and don't know, most of my in-person group started as Pathfinder 1 players. So you're talking about players that came into the game, you know, in a much different kind of system. And now we're playing OD&D. Our first large battle I just took a piece of paper and I drew on the paper where various houses and stuff were. It said, where do you want to put your guys? And they kind of like drew and we did almost like the, the football thing where you like draw mm -hmm. lines. So it wasn't 100% theater of the mind because I wanted to give them some kind of a resource. But we didn't do measure inches, movement stuff. And we did run it in chain mail. They had uh, 110 footmen. 
and uh, versus a bunch of uh, basically pigmen that they were fighting and a giant pig. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, but so yes and no. I mean, that's as close to it as I've come. I think that when you start dealing with large numbers, it's a well, and, and also I guess that's not hundred percent true. When I did my very first playtest, which you can hear on the podcast with Nikki, she does do a relatively large battle, and we do it hundred percent there to the mind. Mm-hmm. So you that, know, that's actually huge, what I was thinking. Like 20, of. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So that was actually, uh, you know, you do lose a little bit of the strategy there, and it just becomes rolling handfuls of dice. But that can also be really fun, you know. Uh, so yeah, we have done that, but uh, it, and now I'm thinking when Nikki ran it for us, she also ran a short campaign. We also had a big fight with orcs, and we did it completely in our in our heads. Mm-hmm. So you can do it. You you lose a little bit of the strategy. You got to kind of just like you do in any game when you theater the mind, right? You've got to kind of be like, well, I move to them. Can I move to them versus the measuring with the stick and right that kind of stuff? And, and, and I know what I know. Taylor's using a VTT for what he's doing, and now yeah. How yeah. much have you been able to play test your 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 rules to actually a, a decent sized battle, Taylor? So I have the I wrote the uh, Ringmail Medieval Battles uh, PDF, which it's not for sale anywhere. It's just on a Google Drive that's linkable in the blog. I wrote that as a love letter to Chainmail when I was trying to figure out how to play, and it's gone. It's undergone a couple revisions. Um, have uh, how have I run it? Well, I have run it solo. Uh, my introduction to D and D as a hobby was via a in a was via wargaming. So I went to a local hobby shop. I mentioned jokingly about TSR miniatures gathering dust. Uh, I I was introduced to that hobby via games workshop so they were playing a lot of warhammer they were playing a lot of uh, warhammer 40k and mordheim so when i went there it was miniatures on the table it was handcrafted terrain and dice and rulers mm-hmm. and uh or, or tape measures we weren't uh, we weren't absolute luddites but <laughs> but so so for me when i was when i was trying to learn the system i printed out some chits and uh, I'll show, I can't show them on the podcast, but I can show you guys here, different right. symbols. Now, these aren't original for a couple of years ago when I was playing, but I looked up, there were some symbols that are used by actual uh, military strategists. I don't know if it's cu- current edition, but uh, so to speak, or if it was something that was used in Napoleonic era. But so you'd have the X for cavalry or the line for infantry and mm-hmm. you move things around the board. And so I ran with that idea and put them down on the table because uh, I'm we're we're not in a particularly big house. Uh, I've got too many small children running around to do a lot of painting. So I didn't have a lot of opportunity to do that. So just chits on the board uh, playing uh, by myself. Alternative, I tried to run, I did, I did set up a VTT system. One of the beauties of Foundry is the rapidity at which a technology developer that is somebody who just writes code uh, will catch on to how to build those systems and so i was able to put together a uh, good vtt version in foundry which i can send i can send the link out if you want to include that uh if, if folks want to download it it's again it just it just you plug in the manifest file into your foundry server and it'll run uh, if you folks want to give it a shot but i haven't had a chance to run it very much on the vtt for a mass battle but we've we've had i've started a odnd chainmail home game which i'm 
testing out stuff that I want to put into the role-playing version of, of my home game, Weapons, Wits, and Wizardry, which I started from the opposite end uh, of where Daniel was coming from. Uh, Daniel uh, had started with OD&D. I want to plug it into OD&D, and I'm being the rebellious type, uh, said, oh, no, I'm going to go from the ground up. I'm going to grab chain mail. I'm going to read half of it, and then I'm going to start. Uh, and then humorously in interactions uh, on Discord and call-ins back and forth on our very, on our relative podcasts, uh, I, I saw some wisdom in what Daniel was talking about. I believe the exact advice you, or the exact commentary that you gave at the time was part of the reason you were having a smooth time building out the uh, chain, your chainmail uh, RPG was because you had gone through OD&D and because you had a grasp of the Zen of the system. And so based on that Zen, you were able to build it towards what you wanted it to be out of the framework that uh, you had ingrained. So I kind of about face. I said, okay, I'm going to run LBB as best I can, and then we'll work our way into chainmail from there. And so we had our third, uh, my third session should be on YouTube today, actually. I've scheduled that to uh, to go out today uh, as of time of recording. And we're going to run another game tonight, uh, hopefully diving into a sunken temple. Oh, so nice. we'll, that, that's the brass ziggurat? Uh, yep. Three sessions oh, of, of brass ziggurat so far. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have another episode of brass ziggurat drop in about 20 minutes. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I got to go in about 20 minutes, guys. <laughs> okay. Yep. Understood. I don't blame you. That's much more important than than this talk. But um, that, that that's folks for the, those listening. This this is a recorded conversation. It's already by the time you hear this, it's already up on YouTube. You, you can go see it already. There'll be links to everything we're talking about in, in the show notes. By the way, um, yeah. No, it's very interesting how how you guys kind of came at it this different different ways. But I Taylor, I cut you off. You're you you had an idea you want to express on ability scores. Yeah, thinking about ability scores, there's a good segue here because one of the things that has come up immediately uh, in the OD&D game is there are no thieves. Thieves did not exist until Greyhawk. So how do you handle thiefy stuff? And uh, I know Daniel has a great resource on that. I won't steal his thunder if he wants to speak to it, uh, that he's got a link that I remember I downloaded and looked at on the from your share drive from the Bandits Key podcast. And what I've been doing lately is uh, a different approach. I'm rolling a dice pool, roll under. So you can roll uh, one, two, three, or five six-sided dice. If it's under the relevant ability, then you succeed. Um, why do that? Well, because you have a definitive curve in a dice pool. And on 3D6, it's it's average 10 or 11. So an average character will succeed about half the time. But then when you have the, five, the 4 or 5D6, that pushes it up to like 14, 15. So a character with exceptional stats will succeed, you know, half the time. Whereas a character with, uh, with marginal stats is very... You're looking at you need to you need to get lucky, uh, and so the the appeal to that for me this doubles back to the design principle level versus ability. So for me, I want your abilities to matter, but I also don't want them to be the end all be all. So this the solution I think I'm going to start playing with is uh, allowing purchase of thief dice. So if you're doing a, a thiefy thing, you can roll an extra die in that 
pool and pick the lower ones to go under your ability. I'm still working out the exact probabilities on that, trying to keep it compatible with uh, OSR, TSR, Fidelity kind of systems. So that way you can plug and play. That's one of the, that's one of the things that when I, when I first came into the movement, I was playing a lot of dungeon crawl classics. I was playing a lot of the newer uh, kind of indie games and, one of the things that you notice if you write a game from scratch, and uh, this this will tie back to ability scores eventually, <laughs> but one of the uh, the things that you have to do is you have to rewrite everything. So one, I've since tr tried to keep my homebrews and my home campaigns kind of close to the source. So I, I do want to deviate. It is a framework where you do want to amend the way that the system works so as to produce the desired experience and narrative you want to support. But at the same time, the closer you are, the more benefit you get. There's 50 solid years of user content that you can draw on. And there's dozens of monster books, hundreds of adventures, just infinite, just logarithmically an infinite supply of material that you can plug and play with relative ease when you maintain that sort of mechanical eye on what you're doing. So that to speak to the ability scores in the little brown books, the you have six attributes and you have three classes. And so we note of the three abilities that have game impact, that's dexterity, which that will affect your to hit uh, in the original books. I believe that was the only thing Dexterity did for you. Uh, I think the armor for class missiles, bit, yeah. yeah, it was a missile mm -hmm. attacks, yep. yep. And Constitution, you had your, mm -hmm. your uh, system shock and you had your hit points. And then you had Charisma, which arguably was the best stat because you it affected mm -hmm. your ability for retainers. And so then you have Strength, uh, Intelligence, and Wisdom. They don't on paper do anything. But then this ties back to level and advancement. Your, your strength as a fighting man is going to drive how quickly you level. Your intelligence as a magic user is going to drive how quickly you level wisdom for clerics. So why do those abilities not do anything? Uh, I'll do some air quotes, you know, make, make sure everybody fits in. And um, the, uh, those abilities are your advancement. So arguably those abilities are going to be the ones that based on your class choice are going to drive your character's competence. They're going to be the primary. That's why they call them the prime requisite. You need those if you're going to uh, advance more rapidly. They're, they're, ex they're extremely valuable to those classes. Yeah. What I think is interesting about that is that I sometimes see people, let's say, coming into OSE uh, now, and they question the abilities, the prime requisite boost to XP. And then usually what they'll say is, why does strength give a fighter a bonus to their XP when it's already so useful for attacks, right? Because they're coming from a modern D&D &D where they think of the, the, the bonus being the main thing, whereas, right, in OD&D, that's not really what it is. It's really about leveling up faster, which, and, and by the way, I've heard people say, oh, it doesn't make a difference. At being 20 some odd sessions into an OD&D campaign, it makes a difference. The, one of the characters is a minus five, two of them are plus 10, and one's at zero, and you can definitely see a noted like difference in the increase over time. Oh yeah, 10, 10%, you, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. Yeah. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm four sessions into the Ash Coast, and we have a we have a character who has a minus twenty percent, and so he's he's uh, he's definitely going to level a little bit slower. Coincidentally, mm -hmm. that's the same uh, player who's asking about thieves. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> they have the low. So uh, on that, on the dice pool thing, I think it's interesting because I'm also doing a similar thing with ability scores and dice pools. I think dice pools are a great option for all the reasons why you pointed out. I do. I use them mostly for things like, okay, you're in this ancient temple. You're trying to figure something out. Well, the cleric would have a chance of knowing something here. So roll this much under your prime requisite score. The the or the fighter would would I know how to use these exotic weapons or? You're you're breaking up, Daniel. Uh, I am. Oh, I've lost a side. You broke up just a little Still? bit there. Yeah, well, you were Am talking about the fighter. You're back. You oh, or up. maybe yeah. the fighter. Do you know how to use this catapult or this thing that you may not have seen before, an exotic weapon of war, or in games like I like to run, like some kind of weird laser pistol, right? <laughs> like, can you figure it out? Magic user, can I interpret these texts without using a read language spell or that kind of stuff? Uh, this kind of thing is what I use them for. And I do the exact same thing with the dice pools. And I usually base them on how difficult the task is. And sometimes the level, like I'll say like, well, you're a third level magic user. You've probably heard of these things. And I definitely use that a lot. Um, the thief skill thing that, that you mentioned, I was trying to base it around gear, which works pretty well. Although interestingly enough, my my players have hardly bought any of that gear. They just, I don't know why it's like, it's out there for them, but uh so I don't know if that's successful or not. But what I was thinking was your um, Thief Point thing reminded me of a game. It's called Adventure Fantasy Game, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I'm trying to think who made it, but I think Paolo Greco. But he has a system called Six Up or something like that. And what he does is as you succeed in something, you spell out the word expert. I think so the first time you do it, you put an E and then you put an X and then whatever. And then once you reach that many successes then you get a bonus so it's not so much that they buy it they have to buy it by doing it so if i climb a lot of walls and i succeed by however means you're going to have them do it eventually i become an expert in that and then i get an extra die when i do it that's kind of how he does it so you got to actually do it in play which i thought was kind of a clever system it's the game is definitely called adventure fantasy game i'm sorry i do not remember the author i'm pretty sure it's Paolo greco but it could be no it, it yeah so it, it it i'll put a link in the show notes jason has pulled his print copy out yeah, nice. I, I've got. It, it uses um. Yeah, it's it's got a mechanic in there. Five more. Five more. Um, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, they'll, the, like, yeah, they'll yeah, be linked in the show notes, folks. Because the actual mechanic is when you try something, you have to roll a five or better to succeed. That's how he does it. Mm-hmm. So, but you could do it however you do it. You could do it with ability scores or whatever. And then you spell out this word, and then once you get the word spelled out, then you gain that skill effectively, and you get a bonus. But I think that's kind of a clever way to do it. And I was considering incorporating something like that in my game eventually. Uh, but I, I've honestly found that it's weird. Without thieves, people just don't even bother trying to pick locks and stuff. They just tell me how they want to do it. I'll use a crowbar. I'll, you know, take my axe to the lock. I'll, you know, I, I just don't, you know, if the door's locked, can I smash it down? You know, they, they don't really, you know, they've lost that. And initially they were like, uh, no thief, what do we do? But then they were just like, well, no thief. So yep. you know. I've noticed the same thing. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that included in the uh, dungeon that have run so far are keys. So each certain enemies will have keys to certain doors. And so, and some enemies will random drop them. Like they may just happen to have one. And so the characters have found a couple of these keys and they're very, they're kind of coveted. They're like, okay, let's try this. We'll use this. And so they're, they're exactly like you said, they think out, they're thinking, how do we get through, think outside the box to get, uh, or, Maybe maybe even just go around, uh, find a different right. way through. Right. No, I, I think that's great, and, and I I'm not a big fan of the thief class to be honest, because I think that w- one of the issues I've had with thieves in later editions, and we won't go into this on this show, 
but the idea that because a thief can do it, it keeps the other characters from doing it to do that yeah. niche protection. And then, yeah. you, you know, anybody, which isn't totally true. I mean, really anybody can listen to a door or anybody can, you know, try to hide in shadows, but you, you have some GMs that, or DMs that will try to do that literally. Well, no, you're a thief. You can't move silently. Well, sure. You, you should have a chance, but you're not going to be as good as, as they are. Right. Cause that's what they do. Right. That's, yeah, yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I guess I I'll, I will out myself as being a, a thief. The thief is my favorite class. I love thieves. It's my, absolutely my favorite class. And it's funny I don't have thieves in my game, but that's because going back to what Taylor was saying, I'm trying to stay as close to the source material as mm-hmm. possible to see. Oh, I tried to sell myself to the bus <laughs> to see, um, like what I can do with this. Like if it was 1974 or whatever it was, and and I and I had this game, how would I handle it when somebody wants to do this thing? Because there was no thief, right? And maybe mm-hmm. the answer is to make a thief class, which is basically what what they ended up doing. But um, I find that playing without all these extra classes adds something. It doesn't take it away. It's weird. That right, being said, does. I wouldn't take I wouldn't take a thief out of the BX game. But in this game, I don't see the reason to add it. So sorry right. to yeah. interrupt. Uh, yeah, I'm going to interrupt a little bit too, and just say that's that's it. It, exp- it expands player horizons. When they know that a thief can do X, then they go, okay, we need to get a thief to do X. And so when they when that option isn't available, then they, when the option isn't on the character sheet, then they think in the game. And so that, that opens a lot of avenues. So, yeah, even to the idea of like, well, we're going to take this treasure chest and lug it back to town unopened because there's a locksmith there or a blacksmith that can open it for us. You know, again, there are ways beyond this moment. And I think that sometimes people think that way because a lot of adventures, unfortunately, I think are designed that way without this, like without a campaign in mind where it's like we have to do it now. We're in this dungeon. But the idea of leaving and coming back is very much part of the OD&D process. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you come to a door, you can't get through it. Well, we'll try to get through it another time. We'll come back with something else. We'll go another way. Having these like single choice options, uh, which, sorry, I'm going to throw shade at the five room dungeon, which has become so popular, which again is a cool technique for one shots. But having that be your baseline creates these systems where people think like, oh, these are the, the scenes that we need to have. And it creates a, a game where the players don't necessarily think that they should leave or try something different because the GM has planned for them to do this thing. And sometimes I just tell my players, I mean, I'm, I'll just be like, you cannot get through this right now with what you're suggesting. You know, if you want to come back, go for it. But there's three other hallways, you know, and I'll just tell them that because sometimes they forget they get locked into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's that's come up in my home games before. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. stuff like water hazards i like putting water in dungeons because players hate it (laughs) but yet i've had uh do you go like this though do you go oh you're gonna take your armor off (laughs) (laughs) that's another fun thing about chainmail but we'll get into that and so yeah but uh they uh, so yeah water do they want to take the armor off to make it through do they have a boat do they wade through it do they work around so and do they go another fun thing is submerged passages so do they jump in and then go through the tunnel to get to the next airspace um that's always so a fun good. one yeah yeah very, yeah. very much a, a poseidon adventure right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so speaking of you you mentioned taking your armor off and we'll get back to that in chainmail. well let's well, let's not keep our listeners in suspense why don't we hit that now <laughs> yeah taking taking the armor off one of the primary things for me with chainmail is i love the idea of one, some monsters you can't beat. 
unless you're a hero. I loved the idea that Smaug was invincible, except because Bard had a special arrow and Bard was a special hero. And I loved, and I like the idea that heroes and superheroes require simultaneous hits to take them out of action. So Conan standing against the tide of uh, Zothasil, I think his forces uh, before he's, you know, uh, paralyzed and taken to the dungeon uh, beneath Oh, Lord, I forget the name of the town. I feel embarrassed now. We'll have to edit that in later. <laughs> but it's out of uh, one of the early stories. That's great because you have to, you one-on-one, you can't beat him, but you need, mm-hmm. you need a group of guys to kind of pile on. and Or in that case, you need a sorcerer to use a, a trick to get, to get him to go down. And I love that about Chainmail for two reasons. One, it creates that that narrative leap, that sort of delineation between what is epic play and what is mundane. But then at the same time, it also provides an abstraction of character skill when it comes to self-defense. So in the traditional game, you have hit points, and there's always an argument about what is hit points. Is it meat points? Is it dodge points? Is it luck points? Is it a combination of all of the above? And usually it's a combination of all the above, but the point is the argument is constant. It doesn't matter how many times you agree about what a hit point is. It's, there's always an argument about what it represents. And so the idea of the hero taking four concurrent hits to take down, that makes sense to me because it's a, the hero is good at defending himself. You need to, uh, you need to have he he's if you have two or three guys coming up against him they need to have the right weapons uh to to combat him or you need to have the uh you need to have eight or five eight or ten guys to be able to hit him at the same time because he's able to dodge those blows because he's able to ward off those attacks and that that spoke to me better about character defense than did a luck or a skill influence on hit points and that's in part the one of the directions I'm trying to go with uh, man-to-man combat. In the episode of Ash Coast that's going live as of this recording, uh, we we have doxed hit points. They're gone. No more hit points. And we're doing concurrent hits. And that did two big things. One, it made combats go a lot faster. Man-to-man can be... A lot of people think it's clunky, but once you get the initiative system, and if you're looking at the weapon chart, it's really not that slow. the The initiative system, you get a couple key points that you have in mind, and then the then it's just two d six back and forth, and you can you can position yourselves and move around. But the so it, it was actually still pretty fast. It was uh, you you eliminated a roll for the hit point damage, and so that's that's by necessity it's it's a little quicker but then two you have the um it made certain monsters a lot scarier and so also i can hear uh i have a little bit of child noise in the background let me know if that's coming across on my microphone too aggressively and i'll stop talking for a bit and mute myself <laughs> oh, but um that's fine you're, cool. you're fine we'll we'll invite uh we'll invite one of the twins in and he can tell you about uh lawnmowers or garbage trucks or something that'll oh, be nice. pertinent that's that's everyone's favorite segment in my podcast anyway is when the toddlers show up <laughs> but yeah and so to conclude on that 
um, certain monsters become a lot scarier uh, when you have to hit them twice in order to take them down. And that is not something that is in chainmail. That is something that I'm trying out. So most of the chainmail monsters with multiple hit dice require cumulative hits. So you have that hit point concept. So you have a giant. If you hit the giant, you're supposed to record it. And once it's been hit 12 times, he's out of action. But well, that's a that's so that's proto hit points uh, going by hit dice, which I think Daniel was something that that you had approached in at least one of your actual plays. Um, but yeah, so concurrent hits that was one of the things for me that I liked because it represented a good representation, a good uh, smooth in. Uh, I don't want to say abstraction again, but I'm going to. <laughs> Uh, to, to represent a character defending themselves and the skill of defense scaling with their martial prowess. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I, I agree. That, that's why I kind of go back and forth. So in the Unchained uh, version, where I'm the heroes, basically, I'm not using OD&D at all. I do exactly that. I have no hit points at all. But I find the hit points are good in the OD&D version because... They give the characters two different things to work with. I never use them from almost never. No, I never use them for monsters. So only for characters. Hit points are very specifically a character feature. Uh, and I use them for things like falling in pits, uh, poison damage, all that type of stuff. That's basically where I use my hit points there. I, I do uh, find that the concurrent hits work really well, especially at higher levels. One of the things I was afraid of was, and it started to happen. There was like that weird mid-level thing where they got to like, fourth level and they were so strong that nothing could take them out especially when most of the uh, uh, enemies would be would eventually be worn down right so you have like a giant like like taylor mentioned it takes 12 hits but not all at once but the player characters take four hits to take them down let's say it's mm -hmm. so hard for a character to go down now granted they just go down when they go down so uh, it's that that's a bit dangerous but but what ends up happening is you start throwing a few other monsters in there, like let's say a troll, and you go, well, a troll, to represent their regeneration, you've got to hit them six times in the same round. Otherwise, they just regenerate back. And now, all of a sudden, that troll is way tougher than a giant because of that. And I think that that's a really good point that Taylor's making there. In a way, hit points – the other thing, too, is I find hit points to be less exciting. Uh, it becomes like – counting arrows and I like counting arrows, but in a sense, because you just, you go into a dungeon and you're getting worn down, you're getting worn down and eventually you turn around and leave, but that doesn't generally represent a lot of the fiction that I like. I was just watching a really terrible ninja movie last night or night before. And you know, the guy, typical ninja movie, right? It's like, he's going through, he's getting beat up. He's like practically dead. He's the whole thing. But then when he gets in that final bite with fight with the bad guy, he's full strength again. I mean, he looks like it anyways, right? He does all of his skills. He takes out this bad guy that nobody else could beat. It's like, if that was a D and D game, that would not have been the case unless you had a bunch of healing, which I think is interesting. I, I think the game is fascinating because the different ways that people have approached things, right? Like we see in the OSR sphere, people do, when going back to what Taylor was talking about, where they don't really know how to define hit points, so then you start having like meat points versus luck points versus whatever. Then you're tracking multiple things. That's one solution, right? The the other solution is to have really rapid healing or abundant healing. Mm -hmm. But I find the hit dice just works better. You don't have to change anything. The characters just are always heroes until they're not, right? <laughs> until they finally get whacked and they're down. Right. And the other thing it does is it is it knocks down that invincibility, like. Well, I don't have to worry about that. You know, I've got so many hit points. I can just ignore these or not ignore, but it, it you know, it keeps some, that feeling mortality in there. Cause even if you're a superhero, you, there's a chance you, you can get one shotted, right? 
So that's right. Any, any creature yeah. that can kill you can kill you, right? There's some mm-hmm. creatures that just can't, right? Like a single guard is right. not going to take Conan out unless maybe he has a two-handed sword. Even then he couldn't, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. think, it, yeah, that wouldn't armored foot against a, even if Conan was in a loincloth, like one guard with a two-handed sword cannot take Conan out. It's impossible. But then that creates great narrative because you don't have to worry about even having that fight. You just like one guard steps in front of you with your two-handed sword. Fine, I'm a hero. I snap his neck and I take his sword. Like that's it, right? You don't need to go through a whole process where and it actually makes because I've noticed too that a lot of people like a more narrative game. Like one one of the biggest uh complaints about let's say random encounters and stuff is that they're boring or they don't have anything to do with the story. But the thing is, is that they're there for a reason, right? They're a hit point train, they're a resource mm-hmm. train. But if you don't have hit points, you don't have to insert those. So it allows you to play a game that's more narrative. I'm not saying you shouldn't have random encounters, but I'm saying that they don't become necessary anymore. You can just make every encounter really important or just narrate past them. Again, the you know two guards standing there, I smash their heads together. It's like, it doesn't matter. Those guards can't beat you anyway. So why are we playing this out? Just tell me how you killed them and we're done. You know, maybe you roll initiative to see if they call for help first, I, you know, depending on the situation. But otherwise, it really does allow for much more narration, which, which I really like. Right. And there's no reason to waste that 15 minutes of combat to to take out those two guards, especially these days when we're all playing online and you you only have a two, three hour session. Why why waste a big, you know, a sizable hunk of that session to a combat that, and I realize it's a controversial statement to say a combat doesn't matter, but ultimately in the scheme of what you're, what we're doing, getting past those two guards shouldn't be that big of a deal. Although it can be interesting if you fail, but Right. And, and talking about combats that don't matter, to, to phrase it a little differently, even if you are playing a dedicated combat skirmish game. So say we've got fourth edition at the table. I know, I know a couple folks in our podcast ecosystem enjoy fourth edition. If I am going to engage a game that's dedicated to combat or, or the, the combat is a major driver for, why am I going to do the boring one? So mm-hmm. it's if it's my five party members versus two guards who don't stand a chance, or if uh, we're talking about uh, one hero against two guards who don't stand a chance, that's not interesting. That doesn't engage the mechanics. That doesn't engage the purpose of the game. So even if you're coming, so you're if you're coming at it from the perspective of creating that shared narrative, then absolutely it's there's no they can't beat you they, there's no point uh but then if you're coming at it from the gamist perspective of i want to play a skirmish game you're going to roll like two attacks and they're going to they're going to go down cuz they're mooks uh, they're they're minions and so why would you do that when you could move on to the set piece right right definitely and, and i think that brings up a point i i definitely want to hit on in this podcast that in case we have cuz we probably have listeners here that haven't watched any of your actual plays they haven't read chain mail so they're not real familiar with it um and they're hanging on just because the melodious sounds of your voices but one of the the thing that i find fascinating with chain mail and the thing that really draws me to it are the three modes of combat because in the scaling that allows and i i don't know i i know daniel's played with that quite a bit in his i don't know if if, if, if taylor you want to tackle that or, or you want daniel to tackle that yep in terms of play. I've played mass battles. I have used the fantasy rules. Uh, I'm currently working through uh, war game culture. Had a had a, ser- a series. Uh, 
I, I interviewed the fellow Stephen behind mm-hmm. War Game Culture a while back on my podcast, where mm-hmm. he was producing a War Games scenario campaign, and so I've, I'm using the Chainmail Fantasy rules to play through that. Uh, but um, I have not had a mass combat involving players yet, so I, I can definitely. Uh, I've used the modes, the different modes of combat, but I've not used them all in an RPG context. So I, I would definitely have to defer to uh, Dungeon Master Daniel. Excellent, Daniel. This because to me, this is one of the biggest strengths of why we want to use chainmail, right? These three modes of combat, right? Yeah, and and I think that um, that was really the draw to me, right? Like what I said when I read Jason Bay stuff, I was like, this is really interesting, and, and I have, I've used all three. I find I use Band to Man the least because of the type of games I'm currently running. Uh, fairly, I'll just quickly go over them because mm-hmm. maybe people them in what I call Man to Man combat, or it's called Man to Man combat chainmail. Um, effectively your weapons and armor matter, right? Each blow matters. So a hero uh, being four hit die would get four blows. And, you know, you might parry depending on your weapons, like all that matters. So that's what that's the kind of combat where like you have a sword out and a guy approaches you in plate mail, you switch to a mace because it'll be better at hitting them, right? That's that's it. And, and the way I do it anyways, I use hit points uh, for that combat, just for that combat. And hit points feel back really slow in my game. Then the most common type of combat, which which I call troop combat, which I think is also called troop combat, I think, is when you've got multiple opponents, like lots of them, three to one type of scale, or you're fighting people who don't have armor and stuff like monsters, right? So you're fighting like a, a, a giant snake. I use it for that. And effectively in those, your weapons and armor still matter, but they're more abstracted. So a mace and a sword are both heavy foot. So they're the same against that. that, that, that. Those combats are much faster. It's really uh, everybody's just throwing a number of six-siders looking for fives and sixes. So that stuff can be super fast around the table. And then the, with the that's also used for your larger combats, like hundreds of opponents. You could use it for that. And then finally, there's the fantasy combat, which is the way I play it. Anyways, it's abstracted. Weapons don't matter at all. It's literally one type of heroic uh, character against another. So a hero fighting a giant would use this combat. And then weapons and stuff don't matter at all. You can narrate it however you like. And I find that each one works really well. Uh, unfortunately, you can't really use fantasy combat until you get up to higher levels because nobody's a hero, right? <laughs> so that sits in the background in the campaign. And early on, you're using a lot, at least for me, because I was fighting a lot of like giant spiders and stuff. There, I'm using a lot of the troop combat, if you will, the, 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 the more abstracted. But I've used also jousting, which is in chainmail, <laughs> which is awesome, uh, which, which is amazing, by the way. That I have it's not so used. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Whenever I, I, one of my favorite things at my table is because, like I say, I play with a lot of players who came from like Pathfinder and 5e and stuff. When I bust out something weird like that, like when I bust out outdoor survival, and like my player at EU was like, Are you tricking us into playing board games? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> but yeah, it's, but but these these modes of combat change the way things feel. So again, you've got a party of, of five adventurers against 30 orcs. You can do a troop combat and it's real fast, right? It's it, it's fast, but it's also furious. Everybody's just rolling their dice. You can have everybody roll at once. You know, all the melees happen simultaneous. But then, like for instance, the campaign I played in, uh, we had one of our characters do a man-to-man combat against an orc chieftain in order to win over those orcs because we had a small orc band that we were controlling because <laughs> that's what we do. And then there was like a bigger orc band, and we were like, we knew we would lose, so our one of our characters challenged them for the leadership. And they did a man-to-man combat, and it was like a back and forth, and it was really dramatic. And I thought, and then we fought a demon at the end, and we used fantasy combat for that. So I think having the different types of play really just changes the game. It's not always just like my character does these three moves every single combat, 
and they use hit points and the cleric does a healing word and the warlock does a eldritch blast and the fighter does you know this, this extra move or whatever it really does feel different when you're playing with different systems and i think that that that's a huge strength of using the chainmail system which some people don't use right some people just pick one of them and focus on it i think using all three really is key for me also i should add that when i was at gen con I ran uh, OD&D with Chainmail, and then we actually, I painted a bunch of two millimeter miniatures, and we they did the dungeon portion of it. And then when they came out, we took a 10-minute break, and I set up a battle on the table, and they fought with miniatures, and we did an actual Chainmail miniatures battle. And it was it was pretty awesome. I mean, so it, was, jealous. it was really fun. Oh, it was so cool. So jealous. And nobody, they were all like, oh, my God, it was so fun. to give them elementals. And it was really funny because they thought they had it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like uh, they're like you go first. I was like, and I moved all the wizards' men in and stuff. And they're like, oh crap! <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> it was I love so it. good. And two of the guys were like ex-military, and they're like getting down and getting all these strategies. It was so fun. It was just so fun getting like into this whole like world of using a different kind of combat. And and you know nobody was like, oh, but my character and I have this on my character because <laughs> they because they switched modes, right? And that's great. And I think that's a really positive thing. I don't mean to say that you shouldn't you know think about your character but like in those modes you can actually come out and play almost a different game while you're playing the same game which to me is just really really powerful and interesting yeah but it really speaks to the strength of the genre and i think i piped i it was a, either i called ray otis or ray otis called me i forget which one it was but i think the the conversation went the same way it's the the game presents so many avenues uh, to appreciate it, that it that may be one of the primary reasons that the genre, the fantasy adventure and role playing genre, ha- makes makes its way into the hearts and minds of so many people because there's so many different aspects of play and of experience that you can do with that with that kind of a game. Yeah, yeah, I, I do wish I played more man to man. That's the one thing that I feel like doesn't happen as much in my table. Uh, because it does feel, because we don't use it as much, it does feel a little bit more slow, you know, uh, especially compared to the troop combat. But mm-hmm. I think part of that is just they're just not playing it as much, you know, because you've got to keep track of more specifically their their armor. If I just say orcs are heavy foot, everybody knows they can look on their chart and go heavy foot. I need five dice to equal this, whatever. They just roll yep. four kills, you know, done. Whereas if I say, well, the orc, this orc's in chainmail, that one's in plate, this one has a shield, you know. Uh, it varies, yeah. Yeah, and it's not as slow as you think, though, as I thought it would be, because a lot of the monsters they're fighting, especially uh, in those circumstances, are fewer hit dice. So they die in one or two hits anyway, so it's not like it's a big a big deal. But at first, it really intimidated me, but uh, we've been using it more. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think uh, I was I was brought into uh, the seven voyages of Zarlarthan. Uh, Oh, very cool. (laughs) And I was brought into that by a friend. And that game has a D20 translation of the man-to-man table based on armor class in it. And so that is something that's very interesting. I I may have to pick up a copy of that and take a look, but that would allow you to turn man to man into a dice pool in that regard and try to try to overcome it that way. Granted it's a pool of D twenties and uh, Mm -hmm. in the, it makes sense to go with D six in 1974 because how many people have 50 D twenties in 1974, but Mm -hmm. I'm looking over, I can, I can probably go back, grab a bag of five or six D twenties right now, just sitting on my desk (laughs) behind me. So interesting idea. I haven't, haven't tried it myself. What do you think the advantage there is? Uh, more granularity? The advantage of the 
man to man combat. Well, D twenty versus D six. Right, guess. right, and yeah. that will be that will be sentence number two. I promise I won't wander yeah. on this one. Um, <laughs> but uh, the 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 advantage of man to man is the granularity of weapon versus armor, and you give the fighter a whole bunch of toys to play with, a whole bunch of tools in their toolkit, which in a more abstracted system, so our BXs of the world. Uh, then they don't have a reason to carry multiple weapons. You have, I have my sword, I have my bow, I'm done. But even like AD&D, you have a motive because you have the weapons versus armor table out of the DMG. Okay, I'm going to bring my hammer because we might come up against skeletons. I'm going to bring my sword because of the advanced damage. So you, in chainmail, that's implicit. There's the, the fighter has a reason to bring that out. So why D20 versus 2D6? Personally, I'm thinking expedience, because if I have, if I have four or five attacks, and I'm rolling, I fight as four or five men, and we have uh, the troop combat. That's very easy. So I'm I'm fighting as five men. I'm armed as medium. My opponent is our is or sorry heavy. My opponent is heavy. So I'm just going to roll five dice and I'm looking for sixes. Very very fast. Very easy. With man-to-man, if you give them multiple attacks according to their fights as equivalents, then you have to roll 2d6 five consecutive times. And so that's going to take a lot more time. And so that's something I'm having to think about as we're playing. And so one solution is what we're adopting uh, in the Ash Coast right now is to tie the attack to the hit dice of the opponent. So if I'm a if I fight as five men and I'm an, I'm attacking a zombie with two hit dice, I may I may only attack it three times because multiple uh, and it's not as complicated as it sounds uh, when you use subtract subtraction instead of division with remain with mm-hmm. modulus remainder. <laughs> but um the but the, where I was going with that is the d20 is faster. So I can either do that long division and roll fewer times, or I can pick up multiple D20 and it rolls the same as the uh, troop combat. So you have a handful of dice, you look for successes and you go. So why do D20 instead of 2D6 dice pool uh, and counting successes? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah the way I do it. Run out of, go, no, go, Daniel, go. Well, just the way I do it is I actually, because obviously that happens more often as the game master because you're rolling multiple bad guys. I have like seven different sets of uh, 2d6 or different colors. And they just know like the blue one is always against E's character. The red one's always against Henry's character. And I just throw them all on the table and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, you know, that's, but yeah, I could totally see the D20s doing yeah. the same thing, but even easier. Yeah. yeah. You just don't get that range, right? Uh, well, the, uh, what, what, the, what do you call it? The middle the the curve the key there and that's that's one of the uh appendices in the ringmail medieval battles uh that i mentioned earlier that i that was one of the first things i did was i looked at the distribution so mm-hmm. i think a difficulty uh, or target number of seven so you have your morning star versus a lightly armored character with a shield that requires a seven so you have a 60 it's either i think it's a 60 percent chance to hit because seven being there are the most number of seven is the most commonly rolled number on 2d6 so if you need that or above you have a slightly better than even chance so it's about 40 percent. so you compare that to a d20 that's linear for one through 25 percent each step if you have a 60 percent chance to succeed that's dc 12 
So what you what you do is you do the set where you see seven, you substitute twelve, gotcha. and when you yep, and that I think is the innovation that I, that that was interesting for me with seven voyages is because that's what they did. They figured out that kind of difference. Now that changes the modifiers a little bit. So on two d six. We'll fast forward a year or two uh, on the OD&D's timeline. You have Greyhawk. Greyhawk adds more functionality. Greyhawk adds the apply your strength modifier to hit. Greyhawk adds uh, apply, yep, for fighters. And I think, I believe that adds the wisdom modifier to your save versus spells. Uh, I believe I, I, I don't use that new school stuff. So I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. but no, but so <laughs> on 2d6, the, the, I would, the biggest reason you wouldn't add that plus one is because the system starts to groan. So if I have a magic sword and it's plus plus one or plus three versus magic users. So if I've got a plus three bonus, that seven that I needed to hit uh, or really magic users are going to be wearing robes. So that morning star only needs a six to hit. I'm rolling a three or better on 2d6. In order to fail, I have to roll snake eyes. That's mm-hmm. a 2% chance of failure. That's literally half as likely as a natural one. So when you have a 2d6 distribution, the bonuses and penalties, they swing really quickly. And you have uh the system can't handle modifiers that are great. Well, it can't, it, it obviously does handle them because you know, you're rolling dice and adding numbers, but the probability goes way out of whack when you have those big, bigger modifiers. And so that might have been part of the reason behind mm-hmm. having no, having let fewer modifiers in that regard. And a plus one sword, a plus one sword on 2d6, that's a huge benefit. On a d20, oh, yeah. on a d20, it's, you know, Five percent. Uh, similarly, that's why you can add your strength modifier. No problem. I have my plus three sword. I have plus two for my strength modifier. That's plus five. That's pretty handy. That's pretty good. But you're up to plus five. That is that is still less of a bonus than that plus three sword was in the two d six curve. And so that's that is yeah. absolutely something to think about. How how does the linear distribution of modifiers affect the? Uh, and here I am. I, I had. Uh, I had, I'm interrupting our focus on narrative and moving our character arcs forward, and I'm talking about nuts and bolts of linear algebra. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, but no, this it, is what it, people it, are tuned in for. This it, and also, what, what I really like about that is this is that approach. And my 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 general thought on that is, hell yeah, you have a plus three sword versus a magic user. You should hit him every you time. Like the, I, yeah. you know, and if that magic user is not a wizard, and if he's a wizard, he's going to fight on the uh, even a seer can fight on mm-hmm. the fantasy chart. Right. Mm-hmm. So where the plus three still makes a big difference. But now hero versus seer, you know, uh, to me, like that sword should be an epic weapon that can to cut down. And that is really one should. thing that I had to really get my my head around was that a lot of people that play in the OSR that play these older games think of their character, especially the OSR. I don't feel like old school, but OSR feel like their characters are these <laughs> like guys in the mud kind of just hacking their way through and not surviving every time. But when you play ODD with Chainbell, your characters are heroes once they reach like third level. Like they are true heroes. Like they, my, my players cut to, I had to fight with four of them, beat 12 ogres. I mean, yeah. I mean, they didn't have a magic staff and everything, but still, like they are badass. And if you don't like that way of playing, 
then you might not want to do it the way I do it. Because yeah. what I realized right away was you talk about people talking about 5EB or Pathfinder being superheroes. Oh, no, these guys are, you know, fourth level fighter wading into like t- even 10 or 12 guards. The chance of them going down if they have armor on is so small. You are epic. So, yeah, yeah. it's really not. Ready that's, for it. that's awesome, because <laughs> yeah. humorously, I, I before before we had started recording, I mentioned that I was very grateful, uh, Jason, for you to set this up because I'd been meaning to touch base with Daniel and try to do a tandem episode. And then we got to do this. And uh, essentially, mm-hmm. Jason uh, was the our liaison. I didn't have to schedule anything at all. We just get to mm-hmm. talk about it. And the tentative title for that conversation was going to be a Jason catchphrase. That is the pathetic aesthetic. Uh, and that's a phrase, and, and uh, I know that I've heard it on Nerds Variety Cast, and I've heard it here, where just like you said, a lot of OSR games are kind of focused on the grind, are focused on the lower level, and Chainmail totally rips that out of the water. OD&D totally rips that out of the water. For Now, there is the grind phase. There is the yeah. wallowing in the mud phase, and that's level one, level two. But once you hit that hero status you're in a whole different world and you can still get, you can still get smeared. So talking about fantasy combat, a hero going up against a troll, you have a chance to get them, but they have a chance to one shot you. So there's still that chance, but the scale is different. And all of a sudden the, uh, the bandits that are accosting you on the road, they just, they better get back to their keep because you're an OD and D lore. You're a name level OD and D fighter. You're, you're not, you're not going to take any of this. And so, one of the one of the very fun things about OD&D and with Chainmail that that you've illustrated more eloquently than I'm going to but one of the very fun things is you progress out of the pathetic pathetic aesthetic and into epic fantasy and you can you can do that whole range from from uh base from basic to immortal uh within within the little brown books yeah, one hundred percent. I right, exactly. That's true. Like when my first when my campaign started, oh, there's only one character that was at the beginning. Like everybody who's playing lost characters in the beginning when they were first and second level. But then again, like I say, once you get to like third level, and you're careful because I also added the I don't know if you're using this or not, but I added the rule where you can defend people, you know, and you get like a fighter in plate mail that's that's uh you know uh for for hit die right, and he says I just stand in front of the magic user and defend them against these bandits. Now the magic user is also more or less protected right yes the fighters taking more blows but you know theoretically they're going to survive it hopefully although it didn't always work out for one of our guys <laughs> but yeah it's like and they and they actually do that thing that every rpg talks about protect the magic user but then when you play in games everybody's just like well the magic user stands in the back and they're just like well all right the goblins shoot them with their bow and they're dead but it's like no the magic user stays behind the fighter who defends them and and it really does create that more epic uh, fantasy. But it took a few times. Like I said, they got mm-hmm. they ran into a six hit die monster when they were second level, and like three of them died in like two rounds. And then the last, the one remaining player was like, "I run." Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That came up. That came up in the uh, Brass Ziggurat game recently. They had uh, they ran into a room of zombies, and the uh, the they've been the it was just this kind of storage closet almost like your your hall closet. You've heard of skeletons in the closet. This was this was zombies in the closet. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> that's where you store your zombies. <laughs> yep, that's where we keep them. Uh, keeps the smell down. But so they they open the door and they, these in they have a great plan up front. They kind of they they formed up into a line outside the door and to try to limit the numbers. So there were there were more undead trying to come out uh, of their uh, zombie locker than uh, there were PCs. But they were able to they were funneling them into they were they. Were, essentially doing what you said they they said okay um 
however we need to form up here, the magic users got in the back and then the armored guys got up in the front and then kind of positioned themselves in a cone so that when the, the, zombie, the, the undead came out, they could just pummel them and prevent them from kind of swarming and overwhelming. And that uh, little bit of a spoiler, it didn't go quite as intended, but while they were retreating, one of the fighters had a great uh, epic moment where he's like, he, he's going to hold the entire uh, the hallway against them. And so the party retreats uh, and the one of the fighters kind of stands down, shows down against this horde of advancing advancing monsters. So it's great, awesome. great opportunity. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to play, and um, it. Uh, I hope my players are having as much fun as I am because I want them to keep coming back, and uh, it's a great. Uh, even at the low levels, uh, you have those opportunities to, and, I, and the reason I bring it up, you mentioned like a level two party getting beaten up by a level six monster. That's absolutely an opportunity for heroism. And these very interesting scenes to play out and then that changes you you're, you're a fighter who ran away he can come back for revenge and then now the uh the the shoe is on the other foot and then uh, you have another opportunity as you go forward for these same kind of moments of heroism and in increasingly epic surroundings increasingly interesting and diverse environments and dungeons or or maps or so i may be I start the game uh, running from the Balrog through cramped hallways and, and mines, and then I end the game smiting him against the mountaintop, uh, against right. the endless stair. 100%. And I think that plays out really well. Like in one other circumstance, they had, they got ambushed by, you know, one hit die monsters, but there was a lot of them. And again, they lost two PCs and the other two ran. They went back to town with the gold they had. They knew there was more treasure down there. They enticed more people. And we got two new PCs, of course. They got like six uh henchmen and just went down there with spears set up a plan and just took out that that the thing like that because they they went in with a strategy and of course they lost some of the henchmen and stuff but in the end they they it worked out for them because they had to go back and fight it it really changes the the way it kind of like i was saying earlier like it, the expectation of just being able to walk through the dungeon and everything's going to die for you if you fight it is is been taken away especially at these early levels with just like a regular osr game so it's not like they're superheroes in the meat in the beginning. And again, they could still die. Like the, the thing they just went through, they, there was multiple times where in fact, one of the guys did uh, like twice two people have gone down, but I, I have the rule that the Carolite wounds brings you back up if you do it right away. So basically two people did actually die <laughs> and they're on fourth level. So it's not like impossible by any means. Yep, absolutely. So to, to double back on the uh, a little bit on the man to man, that I talked about with long division, it actually yeah. does not involve a lot of long division. I just said that for you know <laughs> comedic effect. But the so what we are actively doing so the and I have a blog post that I wrote on this yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind that'll publish eventually. But so what we're doing there is trying to take the uh, and the why I'm doubling back, this ties in because what you're talking about, you have the six hit die monster coming in against a group of spearmen. And now you have six attacks going in. You have a much better chance of, of damaging it, taking it down. Uh, you have you have your strategy on your side. The, the way the, the concurrent hits approach I'm taking allows you to hit at your pay grade. So that is you treat the your fights as equivalents as a pool 
So I have, as a hero, I have four attacks. So if I am attacking another hero who is defending as four attacks, that's going to reduce my pool by his four. So I would roll to attack once. If it hits, it hits. If it misses, it misses. And that way it's up or down. And so this idea originally came to me reverse engineering something that uh, Rob Conley over at Bat in the Attic had posted about a house rule he uses for swords and wizardry, where he gives fighters bonus attacks against low-level creatures because, uh, you know, in AD&D, you get an attack per level per uh, for zero for zero level or normal men. So what he was doing was he was allowing an attack according to level, like an attack pool against minions that are lower than you are. So I was like, okay, I have the opposite problem. So in in Swords and Wizardry and an OD&D with the alternative combat system, you have too few attacks. You get, uh, you get like one, uh, or with uh, the MOOC rule, you get multiple. With Chainmail, when you when you have a higher man uh, man equivalence, you get too many attacks. It's rolling too much, and so I was like, okay, why don't we reverse this? And we'll say, I have an attack pool of four. He has a def- he has a equivalence of four, and roll once, and that fits perfectly with the aesthetic of the fantasy combat table. So effectively, we recreate for higher level encounters a fantasy combat table without the need to expand the fantasy combat table. And so essentially it's, it's just subtraction. It's okay. I have four, I have four attacks. There are zombies. They have two hit dice each. So I'll take away two, take away two uh, for two rolls. But then with, uh, with trolls and stuff with trolls or with uh, giants or with other high creatures, you have to hit you. You have to have your buddy hit them. So you can, if you're fighting against a six hit die monster, a hero may not necessarily be able to take them down the, the weapons versus armor. But if you have your wizard buddy backing you up, they get to roll too, and they can they can then overwhelm it on concurrent hits. And I loved the fantasy combat table because it's one mechanically fast, but two, it's based on literature. It's not about uh, it's not about okay, what rock paper scissors can I set up? No, it's based on appendix N. So I, I talked about I, I referenced the the battle between Gandalf and the Balrog in in Khazad Doom up to Durin's Tower. That is in the chainmail uh, fantasy combat table. You have wizard versus the Balrog or flame demon, depending on whether you have the uh, uh, Tolkien sued me or not version. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, then, so, and then you also, you have, I mentioned Bard versus Smaug. I should probably get some non-Tolkien examples, but I figure your <laughs> listeners will know these. So you have Bard versus Smaug, your hero versus your dragon. You don't have a lot of chance in melee, but there's a caveat. If the hero has a bow, then you take him down, I think on a seven or an eight. I forget which one. Yeah. It might be an eight for hero and a seven for superhero. So you have that built into these games. The troll, uh, here's a non-Tolkien example, your troll versus hero. The troll has a better chance to kill other creatures, but heroes take them down. That's straight out of three hearts and three lions, mm-hmm. where uh, you have the your your 
Holger character, who is a hero, he's able to take the troll out because they figure out it's five weakness to flame. And then you fast forward to Broken Sword. There are trolls that are not true trolls, uh, according to the uh, the fantasy matrix, but trolls are affected by magic weapons. Broken Sword, the elves use magic weapons. So the table is informed by Appendix N, and it's dedicated to creating the kind of experience that you have reading those books. It's a very, Chainmail is designed around the creation of the Appendix N. So we talk about emergent narrative. Emergent narrative is the story that we tell at Waffle House after the fact to the other DMs about what our play, crazy players did. And that that narrative is cre- is informed by both the mechanics and the, and the choices that the players make. And OD&D is designed to feel like Appendix N. Chainmail is designed to feel like Appendix N. And I remember, Jason, this is something you've talked about on other shows and other calls. Subsequent D&D versions, they don't always do Appendix N very well because you talk about uh, Tower of the Elephant. That's uh, the Conan story. That's Mm -hmm. not a party. That's Conan and the Zamoran thief going breaking into the tower and so it's effectively two dudes that's not a party uh that's two heroes uh, that's not a party uh similarly you have the you have uh the broken sword most of the book is there's there's some mass battles at the beginning but then most of the book is following around one uh, two people that are traveling together and so appendix in uh, doesn't always follow the direction that OSR games tend to follow, where you have a dedicated party, you have different roles, different uh, niches that, that are filled by different cre- uh, character classes. And so that's one that's one of the attractive pieces of Chainmail and working with Chainmail in your game is because it, it naturally guides towards that more fiction first or fiction finally, depending on the, depending on the perspective uh, that comparatively to other to other games that a lot of folks have been intro- introduced to the hobby through definitely and so it, you mentioned pathetic aesthetic just to clear the air here because we might have some callers or i, I apologize oh. some listeners hollering at their 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 cell phones or their <laughs> device they're listening on so to my knowledge that term started with andy bartlett on a blog post in 2013 and i'll put that in the show notes where it was oh. probably most uh advertiser or brought in the public consciousness these days is on the monster man podcast great podcast yeah. everybody should listen to and james did a special episode called the pathetic aesthetic that edwin king who's diplomist he has his own um blog and and he's on various discords but he had asked for that special episode on the pathetic aesthetic and and i think that and, and that was in um 2018 but i think that was probably where i know that's the one that brought it to my attention initially yeah, Monster Man is great. Uh, what, yeah, what, I didn't know. Uh, that. Yeah, he's he's a great podcast. He, um, so I have a question. It's funny you. I was doing narrative, and then you went uh, tech, and now you went narrative. I'm going to go tech. So when you have this situation, because now I'm intrigued, where you've got your troll that's six hit dice, and you've got your fighter that's four, and your magic user that's two, so they combine together. Now they're one attack. Does that one attack kill the troll? Yes. So oh, essentially, okay. so. So I've got an I've got an injury table that I okay. use. So ah. it does it's so it's not necessarily dead, but it will be out of action. Um, okay. But essentially, you have your if so it's if, defeated. Oh, yep, it is defeated. 
Yeah. And so it may it. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's very interesting. I wonder. I'm now. I'm super curious. Have you been using this? Because I I haven't got all the way through brass cigarette. So <laughs> yep, I did. Uh, we we used the concurrent hits for the first time in the episode that's going live today. Okay, uh, that is nine seven twenty twenty two. So mm-hmm. we used concurrent hits for the first time. We're going to play nice. it again with concurrent hits tonight. That should come out in the next week or so. I'm trying. I've I've gotten better at recording because uh, I, I don't use the VTT for much. Uh, we have a party token that we move around. I just like the dynamic lighting. Uh, it helps the players to get involved, get immersed, and kind of do the mapping. I, it saves time because I don't have to describe and re-describe the room. So yeah. I use I use VTTs for. Um, Jason loves VTTs. He does. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, I called in a bunch of times defending him, but yeah, I honestly don't really use them that much. I could, I could, I could have used Owl Bear if it had dynamic lighting because I just don't. I was going to use Google Drive for character sheets, and it's it's a. I, a lot of the time, I'll roll physical dice. I may actually, mm-hmm. I may actually borrow your uh, multiple colored dice solution uh, in the future because I, I let players roll a real dice if they want to. Because if you cheat on the roll, you're cheating yourself. And I think, and I've, I've all of my players to date appreciate that. I've not, I've yet to play with someone who thinks that they need to roll high to win. And it's because if you, if you fudge the dice as a player or as the ref. You've denied the 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 emergent narrative. You've you've cheated, and it's not fun because in the absence of character skill, the primary driver behind the victory condition is player skill. Like with with your six hit die mm-hmm. example, they came in with a strategy. With uh, with some of the other example uh, that I that I think I talked about was they came in. You, if you come in with a plan, and if you come in with a I apologize. My children are yelling outside no, the no, they're, office they're door, but um, it's, it's knocking my mind. They can hear me talking. And so we put in a door. So the, uh, I've, when, when the pandemic hit, I had to start working remotely as everyone who was able to work remotely could. Um, but I put, we put in a door to this to this room. It used to be just open, but we put in a door to prevent them from coming in and bothering me. Um, they figured out that they can lie down on the floor and talk under the door to get my attention. And <laughs> so awesome. occasionally I'll just hear this heavy breathing in the background and I look around and there's like baby hands coming out from under the door, like a, like a, uh, like the undead trying to creep in around a, a barricade. Mm-hmm. But, well, they leveled up, right? They, they were OSR players. They figured out a way around <laughs> right. it. They, they did. They're using their player <laughs> skill. Yeah. Um, uh, just a, a, another thing about real dice real quick. Uh, and I'll let you go on, but you, you know, I, I always find it funny when people are like, no, we need to use the virtual die roller and we have to have virtual die rollers when not everybody in the hobby, but 90%, 95%, 98% of the hobby collect dice. We, we, we buy, we spend how much money on dice and we see fancy dice sets and we buy them and we have piles and piles of dice. Why wouldn't you want to use your real dice? (laughs) That's just where I come from on that. I, I, you know, we have all these dice. Let's use them. Well, I see two reasons. I'll I'll be devil's advocate because I am also for on the first surface. I I have everybody roll dice. There's two reasons why I could see to do it. One is if you're doing an actual play and you want people that are watching to have that recorded thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other reason would be if there's some kind of special die. I I was once playing this game and I didn't quite understand it. it. It had kind of almost like doom dice. I guess, and they had a way to track it. So as we were rolling, like it would add the doom dice so everybody could see it on the 
This was back in the Google Plus days, so some kind of mm-hmm. extra thing they had added. So, which I didn't like because the the it was the first time I had ever played in a game online where they made me roll on the thing, and I was like, I weird. Like, but he had a very specific kind of die that he wanted to use. Uh, those are two reasons I could possibly see. But again, I'm with you. I think that all my players generally roll. I mean, sometimes I'll just be like, I'll roll it here. Sometimes I roll on the roll 20 because it's easier for me. Sometimes I roll guys in front of me. I, I trust everybody at my table to to not cheat in the game right. because you're cheating yourself, like Taylor said. Yeah, you are. And uh, with with OD and D, when you're going, when you get into a pinch, a lot of the time the rules won't save you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. So I just so uh, this is really curious to me about this this uh, the simultaneous they are the. Uh, because so now who rolls? So let's say you've got the magic user and the fighter in the situation is one of the characters rolls and then it's they, just a single hit and they. They would roll independently. So the fighter would make the attack and he would roll and he would hit. And then that would qualify as four hits towards the concurrent total because he attacks ah, his four men. And okay. so then you have a friend who rolls as, uh, so say you have a magic user who only fights as two men, he would need to roll and hit. And and get them, or he could use a spell, but that's more right. down the road for the purposes right, of sense. argument. Yeah, and so it's a it's a pool that ref- that effectively okay, refreshes pool. every round. And each and each equivalent character's single hit is the equivalent of their maximum. Oh, that's an interesting. Exactly. Way to do it. I, I, yep. You know, I guess the only downside is this is why I'm asking. Not not that I'm not criticizing. I'm curious. Like, how does it play out if somebody wants to like parry and stuff? You just don't use that stuff because that takes some of your moves, right? Like, yep. No one has asked yet. Um, and so the way the way that I would have it p- play out, I do have the parry rules up on my uh, DM screen. If they want to parry, they sacrifice an attack. However, at present, um, if they make an attack, then they would still hit according to their equivalents. But you, you got me thinking about that because I'm looking at the rule. The way the way parry works in man to man, if I've transcribed it correctly, um, is based on the length difference of your weapon. So if you have a weapon that is between one size category larger and three size categories smaller, then you forego an attack and your enemy suffers a minus two when trying to hit you. If it's between seven and uh, seven and four, Small, uh, smaller, then you have a chance to repost. So you have a chance to sp- to strike back. So it hasn't come up in play yet. But now, now I'm curious. I may have a bad guy do it <laughs> just to see how it plays. Yeah. yeah, if they miss, because the way I do it is if they miss because of the parry, right? So if you're I, parrying yeah. and they miss, then you get an extra attack. So that it's a, it's a it's a um, uh, te- technique isn't really the word, but it's a it's a approach that uh, players have used. And that's why I'm curious, like because one of the tense things is like. Okay, you have four moves. How many attacks and how many parries do you want to do if you could do that, right? And then it's like, oh, okay, I'm fighting uh, three guards. I'm going to, and I have four attacks. I'll attack twice and parry twice, hoping that at the most I'll get hit once, which isn't going to kill me, you know, that kind of thing. And then, so that, that's the reason why, why I like it. Uh, but if you remove that, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I was just curious how that would work with your, oh, no, I, I definitely would, like I the simplification of the role. Yeah. Yep, I would I would keep it absolutely, and I think it would come into play more frequently in the situation you describe, where, say, we have those two mooks who don't have a chance to hit me, and we haven't narratively off them. So if I if I fight as four men and I'm fighting a normal adversary, I because it only costs me one attack to strike a one hit die creature, then 
I can spend two parries and still get those two attacks, or I could attack four times. And I've got a personal, like internal rule. It hasn't come up yet, but my personal rule is if you're rolling more than four, then let's dive over to the uh, troop combat. Just <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That was just I was just thinking of that situation. But then also there could be, let's say, hero versus hero. Two guys are fighting with swords, both in chainmail armor. Mm-hmm. How many parries you make versus how many attacks you make is mm. relevant. Well, is That's relevant very big because yeah. because you could decide I'm just going to attack them four times and hope that I hit them enough that you hope that number one that I win initiative because again if the weapons are the same length then you use initiative mm-hmm. as your role so that will matter hope that I win initiative and kill them before they kill me or I could say I'll do two and two to be safe mm-hmm. or I'll do three and one and really try to try on defensive like uh, okay. where do I sit and and that's why I think it's interesting and that's where it's come up and it's a little bit more which is why I think I I tend to use it less because it is a little bit more strategic when you're playing with a mm-hmm. large group it, it it can be the slowest part that's why I'm curious yep, about it can. how you do it, it can. maybe that's a, yeah. unfortunately though now that now we're talking about it too the the cost to make the attack is equivalent to the the impact you're making. So right. if I am a hero fighting another hero, I only roll the dice once to right. to hit with potentially four attacks. Comparatively, if I am rolling to hit the uh, little guy, um, then I would get to roll multiple times because he only sure. has one hit die. Now that you mention it, if I am rolling, if I parry three times and attack once and I still hit for four, then there's no reason I shouldn't parry three times. And when I'm going up against things. So yeah, I'm going to have to think about that because mm-hmm. the, the first, so the first idea is spend the, 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 um, the cost to parry in terms of the attacks you forego would have to scale with mm-hmm. who you were parrying against. So it would be more right. of a conscious effort to parry something that was more dangerous, but uh, right. Hmm. I'll have to I'll have to think about right. that because uh, what it would do in that situation is if you have two heroes that are both four hit dice, if somebody decided to parry, that means they're foregoing all of their attacks because they mm. you know I mean based on how I'm seeing yep, how it exactly out, which why would you do? I guess you might do it if you just hold dread hold them back and you don't want them to kill you. Right, but that just seems like maybe not the right thing to do. <laughs> right, <laughs> unless you so, really. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the big the big thing for parrying is if you get that mm-hmm. counter attack if yeah. your weapon if your weapon is is to the point where you get that well, counterattack. And, and because parrying factors in, when you have something like a dagger, I don't have it in front of me, but I think something a really mm-hmm. short weapon like a dagger, you can often go first and get a counterattack, yep. which makes a dagger a good weapon against certain situations. And while you might draw your dagger, if it's as useful, let's say, as a sword against certain armor types, like, I'm going to use my dagger, it's going to let me go first. Yep, you know, you drop does. your spear and that dagger gets you, gets you to go first and you get a second attack after they attack and they miss. And then it, you know, it adds like a whole... Yeah, so there's there's a, a strategy in the, thought, in the man-to-man yeah. man that 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 uh, that's there. That's and again, that's the thing, that's the thing I've used the least. So it's like that's why I have so many questions about how you do oh, it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh yeah, and it's it makes the it makes the fighting man the most complicated character. <laughs> oh, 100 percent, and and very cool. And again, when I'm playing one on one, we've used it a lot. It's super cool. But in bigger groups, it, it's a. But then again, I also think like for instance, your magic user who's fourth level and only has two hit dice, they've only got two moves you know mm. and also limited weapons so i guess it's not as complicated as a, a right. higher level fighter might be where he's got you know six attacks and he might say something like oh well i'm gonna parry twice i'm gonna do this you know so it's it's super interesting yeah. and i have one other question for that because you mentioned using man-to-man for the mummies would do you just give their hands like an equivalent like maces or something how do you handle it yep that's essentially okay. exactly what i did i have nice. uh for natural attacks i have 
four types, I want to say, uh, one of which is uh, uh, a bludgeoning type attack that's based off of uh, this based off of a mace. Nice. I did. Okay. Yep, I did. I gave them a penalty on their length for the purposes of speed because zombies are supposed to be slow. But yeah, essentially it was I, I have four different weapon type attacks for natural attacks. So you have the, the bludgeoning types, which are more effective against heavy armor, because if you think about it, a, if I'm getting punched by a zombie or if, if he's trying to claw at me like you see in the movies, then my plate armor isn't going to help that much. He's going to grab it and he's going to pull me up and try to close on me. Uh, then comparatively, you have, uh, say, a bite attack from a right. wild cat. There's a real story from uh, a national park. I want to say it was might have been use. It might, I think it was in California. I forget where it was. Uh, but there was a little girl who was wearing, they went to a lake uh, and a little girl was wearing a life vest, like the, the old, the old big yellow kind, the kind mm -hmm. that we had when we were growing up compared to the nice ones that they make for kids now. But the, yeah, the giant yellow kind that hangs around your neck. She, this little girl was attacked by a mountain lion and the mountain lion bit on the back of her neck, the, the same as it would any other prey. But she had that giant foam life preserver. And so it shook her around a little bit, but the, it couldn't bite through the life preserver. And the, the parents ended up scaring it off. And she went, uh, she went home shaken, but unharmed. And so uh, you have different, different, uh, the, so the bite attack would be affected differently. So if I have that plate armor, if I have that heavy helmet, or if I have a male, then it will defend differently than if I have uh, a male coif or if I have a uh, leather armor on, which although theoretically, if you're getting struck by a mace, then it's gonna hurt just as much through leather as it would through chain. Yeah, I think part of, the, part of the consideration there where you have a weapon which may be more effective against heavy armor versus less effective against lighter armor, the trade-off is agility. So can I move, because with leather, it's, it's, it's more designed to deflect ablative blows. So I'm hitting, I'm being struck by something, but I've moved out of the way and it's catching some of it. And so you have a lot more dexterity in uh, boiled leather than you would in say, uh, Assyrian epoch scale mail, which is, which is heavier and a little, a little clumsier. And so there's, there's, there's a give and take in that regard in how the, um, in how the table is set up. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, but now there's going to be one comment below linking to that YouTube video with the guy swimming in plate mail armor. So get ready for that. Yeah, doing cartwheels. Yeah, <laughs> doing cartwheels, right? <laughs> yep, always. And to which I reply, that is why the the your encumbrance is what determines your move speed, not your armor. Right. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, yeah, and also also they're running a five minute course and not wearing plate mail for eight <laughs> hours, and then suddenly getting into combat in the middle of a dungeon. Yeah. Anyways, that's a, that's a, but somebody always posts a video like that whenever you mention armor be like yeah, yeah, I always leather. Yeah, I yeah. always post that video. I'm that guy. Yeah. Well, that's like you know the weight of swords and the you, yeah. you know a lot of times games don't mirror exactly, but a lot of it is encumbrance. Encumbrance isn't weight. Isn't like a scale. The weight on the scale. The encumbrance is how bulky it is. It's a mixture of of the weight plus the bulkiness, right? So yeah, right. it is. I would say it, it, my, my I always assume, I guess, but it, it very rarely comes up in play. So that like when you get into a combat, like you drop your bags and stuff, you're fighting, mm -hmm. right? Like that's what we're trained to do in the army, right? Like you drop your bag, you don't have it on your back, or you get down, you get down, right? So 
Like that's what I imagine characters doing. So that's why I don't really worry too much about that in combat, but, but I use the armor as movement speed. Cause I also think that's a balancing point, right? Cause mm-hmm. if you can move just as fast in plate as you can in leather, then why would you ever not wear plate? Well, well, that's the other thing. Yeah. When you look at the costs of things, it's, but, but, but again, it's not the real world's fantasy. No, it's not. It's it's a fun game and it gets a way to balance things out. That's why clerics are really, really powerful at ODD. It's funny Mm -hmm. how powerful they are. They're, they're almost as good as a fighter up to like the first like few levels as far as like scaling Mm -hmm. and they can use the same uh, armor. And if you're using ODD rules where, every weapon does a d6 and it doesn't matter what armor you're wearing because you use the alternative combat system then a cleric is a much better fighter than a fighter up to like about third level uh it, which again it shows you where chainmail comes in because the fighter's ability to use all these extra weapons really makes them more powerful you know the two-handed swords the daggers all that stuff just just works better against different types of monsters and so unless you're going to make up your own rules for that wouldn't why bother they're already there right Right. So. And, well, and that's why fighters get the advantage of magic swords and whatnot. Too. Oh, and magic swords. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That's the big deal. I guess magic swords are super common. I, mm-hmm. I, I rolled a random uh, treasure thing for this wizard and the and his henchmen. And I think like seven of his henchmen had magic swords. <laughs> and of course, the party took him out very cleverly. So they ended up with a whole ton of magic swords. Like, what are we going to do with all these magic swords? Yeah. I'm like, it's ODD. You have a lot of magic swords. So they started giving them right. to their henchmen and stuff. And, well, but that's well, it. That's how it bounces out. Yeah, and that's kind of funny too, because because the magic you know magic weapons are as we were talking about earlier, you know, with the two d six curve, you know, that plus one is a big deal. Magic mm-hmm. weapons are a big deal, but yep. you know, magic swords are super common, and, and so it's a matter of it's a matter of making your magic items, which this isn't necessary by the book, but it's the idea of you, you know let them do neat things, but not just necessarily just pluses, right? And yeah, I, I'm a fan of unique magic weapons, which you know, if possible, as opposed to your, you know, where you go to the magic shop on the corner and, you know, can buy and trade magic items willy-nilly, right? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, the way I'm running this current campaign is like, we're kind of going back to what Taylor was saying, I'm running it close to the book. So if I roll treasure and they get a bunch of magic swords, I'm just keeping it to them because I want to see how it plays out. But mm-hmm. it does make a big difference. But, you know, surprisingly, it's not that much of a game breaker. You you have to consider that you can only use one magic sword at a time. Most magic swords in my campaign anyways are intelligent, which means they're not going to want you to have a second one. So like, because one of the characters was like, oh, I have two swords and I can use them. I'm like, well, your first sword has a high ego. You start, it doesn't want you to take that sword. You would dice off against it. They were like, oh no, I'll keep the sword I have. I don't want to be controlled <laughs> by my sword. You know, and it was fine. So they gave it to a henchman and now the henchman is super loyal because they have a magic sword and, mm-hmm. you know, such is life. And I think that works out pretty well. Right. No, I, I, I think so. So at first, when I uh, went to OD, this is one of the things I mentioned at the very beginning, I thought, well, I'll just change the combat system, and it's a tag on, and I see this is what a lot of people do. But when you actually start going into it, you have to think about if you change your combat system, a lot of the spells are affected by it, things like bless or hold person, and these kind of spells have very specific effects, or maybe not hold person, but, uh, you know, based on, like, they give bonuses to armor, or, like, protection from evil was a big one, right? It's like, what does it actually do, right, in, in a case where you're using this other system? So it does make you have to dig in, even with a simple system, and say, if I'm changing the combat system, that plus one with bless is a lot more powerful than it, let's say, is in a system where it's with D20. Or that protection from evil where they fight uh, as a lower hit die, that makes a big difference too. Like, how would that affect, you know, how you're fighting there? And I think that's super interesting. And I do use that, by the way. So, like, if, if, a, if a monster is uh, affected by protection from evil and they're supposed to fight as one hit die less, 
then what I actually do is the cleric, if the cleric hits them and scores enough damage to kill them, minus that one hit die, they will defeat that creature, even though it has more hit die than, but only the cleric will be able to do that because they, or whoever has to protect people spell up. And it, it's really interesting. <laughs> Again, it makes clerics very, very cool. Right. I, I remember back on, on your show when you started kind of getting into this and talking through having to adapt all the spells to, to yeah. use with chainmail, you, you know, going through and having to effectively rewrite that. And the same thing with the monsters, having to adapt all the monsters for, for use yeah. to, to fit in the tables. Right. And what's interesting, too, that I'm finding, and I haven't encountered it too much, so we're, we're kind of playing it out, is things like fireball, right? If you're going to do uh, hit dice, right, and a fireball does six hit die dice, does it just kill anything that's six hit die? That was my original thought, right? Because in OD&D, a save versus spell against a fireball gives you either no effect or full effect. Like, there's, it's, it's all or nothing. Against uh, wands and stuff, you do half damage, and against dragons... But so then you've got this fireball spell, which is really powerful because if you're throwing a fireball, anything six head sides or less that's affected by it that doesn't make a saving throw is dead. And it's it's really kind of I haven't had it happen too much in play, but it's one of those things where you got to be real careful because that enemy wizard is going to take out your whole party that it took them six months to build up with one single spell. And you know, if they fail to save, that is mm -hmm. so. Uh, I'm still debating how I'm going to handle things like that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to play it out different ways. At first, I was doing the uh, the all or nothing, and now I'm thinking I might do something to the effect of using the hit points for stuff like that. But again, I'm I'm up in the air on that. Yeah, so I'm have curious. You, yeah, have you thought about that? How you're going to adapt spells over? Uh, I have a little bit, uh, and that actually leads into a question I was going to ask. I remember you had an episode, Daniel, where you talked about chainmail wizards versus. OD&D wizards. Have you stuck with the Vancean approach? And I remember, I think there was some Vancean magic in some of the actual plays that you had done with OD&D, but I will, I will admit I have not been watching as many APs as I used to. Um, so I may, I've, I've fallen behind on some of the things that you had put up on the channel. I have not done that many, so you're not much. <laughs> I did a really good Budiel one though. Check that out. Uh, so, uh, Yes, I've, I've been keeping advanced in again for this campaign, but in the unchained game that I'm making, the secondary game, I'm going to use the, the chain mail magic. Um, because what happened was, I was like, how interesting is it going to be to be a magic user if you really can't cast a spell, right? Because this is the big thing, right? This is, you see people come into the OSR and they're like, magic users suck because they cast their one spell and they can't do anything. So it's like, now I'm going to create a system where you can only really use this, these spells during battles, you know, and you need like a, a, a ton of dirt to summon an earth elemental, which is crazy powerful. But how often are you going to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. But in my play test where somebody played a seer and I allowed them to have some of those other abilities, the counter spell, the detecting magic, some of that other stuff, the character was actually almost more interesting because they couldn't cast spells. They were just knowledgeable about magic. And I like that route. If you're going to play in a more low magic world, they're not running around casting spells left and right, but they can counterspell. Like there was a device that went off and it was like going to basically kill everybody. And they were able to use their counterspell to stop it where everybody ran through the room, stuff like that. And I found that to be really powerful. So to answer the question, I guess somewhat subtly is that right now I'm playing OD&D with Chainmail bolted on and I am staying Vancean, but I plan on doing more stuff with the Unchained game where it's going to not be Vancean and going to be more ritualistic for the most part. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yep. I have not forayed too much, uh, to answer your question, Jason, into the differences in casting. I love the 
chainmail magic system part in part because like daniel was describing you have these big effects and some very interest it leads to some very interesting stuff and there's certain abilities that wizards have in chainmail that in later editions of the DD game turned into spells so for example wizards are immune to missile fire in chainmail there is a spell in DD. Uh, was uh, I forget the name of his it, protection uh, from normal missiles? Protection from normal missiles. Yep. Thank you. That's that's. I think that's I just used it in a game. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's literally what it uh, is called too in the Chamber Book. So mm-hmm. they took certain things that the wizard just innately could do and turned it into spells, and that makes sense from the resource management game. It's the packing your toolkit uh, approach, and so it's it's a part of the design. But when you think about them as class features, also that that's interesting. That's that's a yeah. that creates an art that creates a new archetype that that's fun to explore. It does, and it also prevents that thing I mentioned earlier, where like when the wizard stays back out of combat, but then the DM just has a, a goblin shoot him with a bow, anyways. You know mm-hmm. that kind of thing, or the party does that, right? Mm-hmm. They're fighting the minions up front, and they're like, "No, we won't fight them. We're going to shoot a bow at the wizard way in the back. We're going to kill him." Well, guess what? He's immune to normal muscles. You can't do that. You got to get up there if you want to fight him. You know that kind of thing. Or right. use magic missiles. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And again, that's that's not something I've worked on too much. It, currently, my game is full on uh, standard Vancean at the moment. Uh, I do have some ideas I want to apply to clerics. Uh, namely, I want so one of the things I was trying to do was give each magic source a unique feel with. Magic users and clerics, they operate under the same principle of tools in a toolbox. You get uh, X number of spells, uh, you get, uh, and then you use them. And the lists are different, which give a different flair and a different feel and a different utility. But what I wanted to do was give it a different execution at the same time. And so for, uh, for clerics, what I wanted to try was in addition to being able to call miracles down from their patron deity, they may also be able to get certain things or have role play incentives. So you get you to to access the second tier of miracle, you have to abide by a particular taboo. And so that would, uh, you could have a cleric that started out one way, and then based on the the taboos and uh, prescriptions, of the of the of the deity to earn favor with the deity uh, and that that was one of the mechanics i was trying to to balance is you would you would instead of you would earn the equivalence so a spell slot so to speak you would earn that by doing things in character uh that would that would be predetermined beforehand because i think i mentioned this uh at some point but I'm not a fan of arbitrary role play rewards. Uh, when you do that, it becomes a game of who can make the DM laugh the most mm-hmm. and they'll get the bonus XP. Um, but when you have uh, when you have that written in advance, it's like, okay, these are some check boxes that if you do this in role play, then you get this outcome. It becomes more empirical and it's less of a um, it's less of a uh, subjective thing where where you end up you know rewarding all of the spells to the dm's wife right yeah no definitely well i mean first of all you should do that <laughs> i can't yeah, actually, for the life of me get her to play I, honestly she loves puzzle games i tried to get her to come in playing the thief class she came she observed she observed a couple games actually uh back when we when i was playing in college but i never got my wife to play it just wasn't her thing 
Yeah. She said it yeah, wasn't what I thought it everybody. would be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have and, a friend and, like that. Like I yeah. thought he would love D and D. He loved video games. He loved fantasy. Whatever he he played mm-hmm. twice. He just he's like it's not for me. I just don't really like it. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably because I'm a terrible DM. But that's that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what I was gonna say about the clerk. Oh, um, in Oriental Adventures book, I think the the Ujen. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. They have something like that. And I think that is super mm-hmm. interesting. They have taboos that they that they have to follow in order to, uh, you know, if they don't, then they basically, you know, in typical AD and D fashion, if they don't do it, they lose something. Versus if they do it, they gain something, right? So it's like you pick something like I can't cut my hair or whatever, and then if mm-hmm. that happens, then you don't get spells that day or however long. Yeah. So I love that idea. I think it's a great idea, and it adds a lot of flavor, for sure. Right. And, and you could and- do different deities. I mean, I only have one deity in my world, Astor, the god of sheep herders. So I don't know exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly what they would do but you know maybe something to do with sheep yeah they're 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 only allowed to wear wool clothing that's right right yeah <laughs> well we'll have to explore that we're, we're coming up on two hours so we're going to wind down but i i hope both of you will be open to coming back on at some point and we'll look for and definitely we'll have links to all your shows all your all your things in the show notes and you know people can follow your progress as you guys go down the so the goal is, I think, eventually for for your projects, which are kind of be being developed independently, they're they're going to be released, right? Daniel, I think you you were talking about drive through RPG. Was that? Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to release the 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 Unchained, which is going to be the the one that's strictly built off chain. Well, as of JML's mm-hmm. chassis uh, this month, it's September now, right? So possibly by the time this comes out, that that is my goal. I've set a goal because if you don't put a date, you never do it. Is kind of right. the, what I've learned in life. So it's mostly done. Uh, uh, I think I was talking shade when I said it last time, so I won't say it now, but I read a bunch of rule sets when I was at Gen Con and I looked at them and I was like, yeah, I should just release my, because <laughs> I, you know, because I, you know, you're worried that like what you produce isn't going to be good or written really well. Cause I'm not a professional writer, but the reality is that it's fun to play. And I think if people want to enjoy the game, then they will. And if I have some, you know, don't use the biggest words in the world, or I can't write as well as, you know, Gygax or whatever, then so be it. You get right. the, the Daniel language, but yeah, this, this, uh, Hopefully this month we'll have that out and we'll we'll play it because I, I'm really enjoying it. I, I am. I, I, this 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 has been a really interesting and and just to, to wind up on one last thing there is that because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people look at these games and this is a very common thing like well it's just nostalgia that's why I think they're good but I did not play ODD or Chainmail when I was a kid I'd never played it until I was an adult so I, I'm not having any kind of memories it's like this is literally something brand new for me that I discovered after seeing Jason V's work. Yep, same same here. Because I saw the miniatures, but I never got to play the game. And finding chainmail was uh, a big a big new thing. And the the if the OSR is an attempt to reproduce a romanticized version of our own entry into the hobby to recreate that sort of rapt fascination, this is doing it for me. Yeah, sure. So, so is your are you are looking to release your product at some point, Taylor? Uh, eventually, yep. So I've got currently, I do have the playtest document up on the blog that folks can just grab uh, Google Docs. Um, I'm going to, it's it's really overdue for a revision. <laughs> Some of the stuff I talked about doing uh, and that we've doing on the YouTube uh, is not documented in the in the work, but it'll get there eventually. I'm probably going to, I'll probably throw it up on DriveThru. Uh, folks love it. I'll probably throw it up also on uh, the Big Geek Emporium in part because Randy, one of the guys behind it and Joe, they're friends of friends of my podcast, but also I love the principle they're founding that on. That is uh, that game is more important than 
creator. And it's, 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 uh, keep, keep the world out, focus on the game and, uh, come together based on a common love of the, of the adventure. So I may, I may do that as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing that. And like I say, hopefully you guys will be willing to come back on Cerebrivore, maybe to talk about Chain Man, maybe to talk about something else. Who knows? You, you, Absolutely. You're welcome. Fourth yeah. edition. Yeah. <laughs> hey, for, you, you know what? Fourth edition, well, we won't get into it here, but fourth edition is not all bad. I, I no, think I actually, go back and look at it. Based yeah. on what people were saying about fourth edition, I had to buy it to look. And I, if I flip through it, it looks pretty good. I will eventually get it to the channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like a pretty cool little system. I mean, I didn't buy like the seven different players handbooks they have for it, but I have the core set. <laughs> I love I love fourth edition. It's what introduced me to the OSR. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. The the biggest sin of fourth edition, arguably, is that it's called D and D, right? Not well, well and, and and I don't mean, and that's kind of a backhanded comment, but 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 actually, if if it wasn't, if it was called, if it was the World of Warcraft role playing game, or if it was nothing, you know, if it was just called something different, it, people wouldn't have come in expecting something else, right? And because they they tried, they said, we're going to change and update the system, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's okay to try new things, but mm-hmm. I, just the name, the, the name is caught, caused, I can't. Yeah, it came, it came with some expectations. Yeah, it came with expectations that, and, and I think people just needed or wanted to see certain things in D&D they weren't seeing there. And, and that, you know, that yeah. caused the problems. So and that's okay. why we have a Pathfinder. That's right. And, and that's why we have Pathfinder. So, okay. Well, now that my foot's in my mouth, I'm going to close this out. Thank you again, gentlemen. I really appreciate your joining. Like I say, I'll get with you. We'll have links to all the things in the show notes and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Delve on. Oh, that's